Hey, well, we are in the second week in a uh, series <laughs> about uh, reasonable doubt. And last week, uh, talked about the, uh, the general revelation of, of God, and, and this week we're actually talking about God's revelation, the Bible. And uh, along with a lot of different beliefs, as you saw on, on the video there, along with a lot of different beliefs in the Bible, there comes a lot of misinformation about the Bible. So I just want to give you some misinformation, some maybe lesser known facts, if you will, about the Bible. And uh, these are purported actual responses from a Roman Catholic elementary school test, according to the children, lesser known facts that you may not know about the Bible, but uh, reported by elementary school tests. Here they are, the answers about the Bible. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam, eat the apple. I, I'm not making these up. These are off of us elementary school tests, right? The seventh commandment is thou shall not admit adultery. <laughs> Thank you and good night. All right, um, here's, here's another one. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt during the day and a ball of fire at night. You can't make these up. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. And finally... Uh, Christians have only one spouse. This is called monotony. <laughs> Facts you may not know about the Bible, even though you may have read it. Apparently, they might be in there. So there's confusion about the Bible, and uh, it starts at a young age and just keeps going and going and going. Um, a year ago today, actually a year ago today, May 25th, Gallup did a poll, and uh, here's what they found out. Only about one-third of Americans believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God. Only one-third believe that. Now, I, that's kind of staggering to me. I mean, don't we live in a Christian nation? I mean, isn't, isn't this supposed to be the one that we put our trust in, you know? And, uh, and yet, only one-third of Americans actually say, yeah, yeah, this is, this is God's Word. Um, so apparently, a lot of people are asking questions in. And some of them, you can even guess from the screen there, like, is this really the inspired Word of God, or is it just merely the opinions of men? And just some, some opinions of, of authors who wrote it. Or is, is, it, is it trustworthy as a text? Is it reliable? Uh, how, how do I know that I can actually really, really honestly believe what's written in it? Those, those are great questions. But in the, in the short time we have today, because of this series, Reasonable Doubt, we want to take God's Word and, and kind of put it on trial, if you will. So I'm going I'm to give you a lot of information. I really encourage you to, to grab your program, uh, steal a pen from the person next to you, whatever, and start writing some stuff down because, because I, I guarantee you will not be able to remember all this stuff today. There's going to be a dump load truck of, of just stuff that we're going to talk about, evidence about putting the Bible on, on, on trial. And, and, and here's the point, is in a court of law, just as Dave mentioned last week and kind of set it up today, in a court of law, all, all we're saying is, is there a reasonable doubt? Is there, is there a chance? Can we provide enough evidence that, that we could say, yeah, yeah, this could be the Word of God? All right, that's, that's really all I want to accomplish today. And, and by that, we're just going to give quite a bit of evidence and, and ask the question, is the Bible what the Bible says the Bible is? Is this truly the Word of God? So before we get started, I actually want to read to you what the Bible says about itself. So written in the Scripture, the Bible actually says this is what the Bible is. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses 16 and 17. Here, here's what it says. All Scripture is, is what? It's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it is inspired is what that really means there. It's inspired, meaning all Scripture is, is God's Word, and it's, you can kind of say it's God's Word and man's pen, right? All skip, Scripture is inspired, it's God-breathed, and it's useful for, for teaching, which we could say showing us the truth. It, it, it's, it's useful for rebuking, in other words, ex- exposing our rebellion, exposing what, what we do against God. It, it's, it's useful for correcting you know, our mistakes, correcting us, kind of disciplining us, and training in righteousness. Another way to say that is, is helping us to live God's way. So that, and it goes on here, so that the, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, so the, the, the Bible is, is all about correcting and disciplining and training and, and helping us along in life so that we can be shaped to kind of do what God has asked us to do, shaping us for life. That, that's what the Bible says about itself. In other words, the Bible is claiming everything that you need is found right between the covers. Everything that you're going to need for life to do what God has called you to do is found in Scripture. That, that's, that's what the Bible claims. All right? So, so the question then really is that we have to ask ourselves, and we're going to kind of ponder this for the next, uh, I don't know, 30, 35, 38, 40 minutes. We're going to ponder these questions. Is the Bible really reliable then? I mean, is it truth? Is it truly the inspired Word of God? And, and the more important question is, so what evidence do we have? You know, if you've grown up in the church for a long time or just kind of, you know, been going to church forever, sometimes we have to pause on this because it's easy to just say as a believer, oh, of course, it's God's Word. How do you know? How, how do you know it's God's Word? What's the evidence? Some of you are on the opposite side of that saying, man, I, I don't even know if I can believe this thing. I, I mean, seriously, who can believe this myth? Who can believe this book? It's just so far-fetched. What's the evidence? And so we're going to put it on trial this morning. And uh, before we do, though, I'd like you to look at some of the facts so we can kind of acquaint ourselves, some of the facts about the Bible. Let's take a minute to just talk about some of the facts of the Bible. It's uh, one of the best-selling books. Actually, it is the best-selling book in all of history. Ironically, it's the most shoplifted book as well, which I actually think is kind of funny. It's not one book but it's 66 books wrapped up all together to make one book. Now there's 774,746 words in the whole entire Bible. If, uh, if you were an average person just kind of reading from end to end, it would take you over 70 hours to read it out loud. It was written by politicians and statesmen and shepherds and peasants and poets and even tax collectors and musicians and farmers, people from all different walks of life. Over 40 different individuals contributed to writing the Bible. It's written in a lot of different places. It's written in the wilderness, in a dungeon, even on an island while traveling and and in prison. It's written in uh, 23 different locations, 13 different countries on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic over a period of 1,400 to 1,800 years. It covers a variety of topics. Um, Here are just a few. Ambition, marriage, divorce, sex, greed, guilt, generosity, parenting, even romance, 
and pride, obedience, murder, rape, criticism, peace, joy, discontentment, delayed gratification, enjoying life, demons, angels, wealth, lying, death, wisdom. The Bible even talks about cats because, you know, it talks about Satan and cats and, well, you get my point. All right, so those are some of the interesting facts about the Bible. Please don't send me emails. Um, but, but so back to the question then, if, 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 is the Bible true? Is it authentic? Is it trustworthy? Is it accurate? Um, or is it just the opinion of man? So in 1952, there was a professor of mil- military uh, history. His name was C. Sanders. And the Sanders came up with three specific tests to evaluate the authenticity of historical writing. And, and, and just, just not for the Bible, but for every historical writing out there, every, every work of antiquity, he, he, he uh, 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 came up with this test. And, and since then, everyone's kind of been using this threefold test to say, is what we're reading legit? Just not the Bible, but any work, any historical work, is it legit? So for the next couple more moments, we're going to take a look at some of those tests. And the first test is this. It's called the internal test. It's the internal test. And and what this really talks about is, it answers the question is, do the writers of the Bible claim that their writings are true? Do do the writers who are actually authoring and putting together these letters and and these books, do they claim that their writings are true? Are are they just a bunch of stories that somebody made up and and they just kind of, you know, just kind of fell out of thin air and they just kind of threw them together? Or... Are they, are they eyewitnesses? And so kind of if we were in a court of law, we would say these are our first witnesses here, our first eyewitnesses, the people that are saying, listen, I totally saw it with my own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. Check this out. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and His coming again. We have seen His majestic splendor with our own eyes. In other words, what Peter is saying, he's like, I was there. I, I, I experienced it firsthand. I'm a witness. I saw it. What I'm telling you is absolutely true. I wrote about this. I experienced this myself. We could, we could say in this court of law that that would be the first witness. Now, some of you might be thinking, and, and, and I think this is a pretty good argument, isn't this just kind of circular thinking, though? Actually taking evidence from the Bible and actually saying, okay, it proves that the Bible is real when we take evidence from the Bible just to prove that the Bible's real and check it out, it's real? It feels very circular. But, but here's the point. What we're really exa- examining is truth claims. We're examining the, the very, uh, various authors of the Bible, and we're allowing them to actually speak for themselves. Uh, because remember, you got to remember the facts here, is that the book, the Bible, is just not one book. It is a lot of books made up by, uh, by a lot of authors over a long period of time. And so, that, that brings a lot of validity to say they're saying the same thing. They didn't know each other, but they're agreeing with the same story. That's pretty powerful. So outside of Peter, there are a lot of other witnesses, over five hundred primary witnesses in the Bible, not secondary witnesses, primary witnesses who said, we saw this, we experienced this, this is true, what God has done. And here's another instance, we call this our second witness, John. 
In uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says this. Oh, I love this. The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. He is, Jesus Christ, the word of life. This one who is life from God was shown to us, and here it is again, we have seen him, and now we testify. In other words, hey, this, this, okay, we saw him, we touched him, we were with him. Okay, now listen to our story. This is a firsthand account. Listen to our story. Now we testify and we announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then, here it is again, he was shown to us. Verse 3, we're telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. In other words, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. We checked it out. We, and now we're recording it for you. It's very, very important. This internal test. These guys who were saying we were there. We saw it. We didn't hear about it from somebody else. We were there. Now, there's a very another uh, important question we have to ask about the New Testament, and that is, okay, so when was the New Testament written? Because this kind of is very important when you're talking about firsthand witness account here. The, the New Testament was written between 47 and 95 AD. So the, the point here is that it was written pretty early on. So there's a lot of first generation believers who are still alive. Now if you're writing something that's false, I could totally come back and say, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. I could refute, uh, totally refute your claim. And I, I could say that's not how the facts went down. That, that, that was not it at all. But here's what's really compelling about these eyewitness statements is that nobody does that. No one disagrees. They're, they're, they're saying, no, this wasn't true. They're saying, we agree with what you have written here because we saw it ourselves. Furthermore, if you start to, to look at all the apostles and how their stories ended, this kind of brings credence to their, to their eyewitness accounts. Almost all the apostles, almost all, not all of them, faced martyrdom. They died for what they believed. Now, now, see, men only die for what's real. You're not going to die for a lie, will you? No, you just disappear, take off. You're not going to give your life for something that was just kind of made up, that was just kind of put together, just kind of concocted. You don't forfeit your life for that. So this first test that, that Sanders has, has applied to all works of iniquity, as you apply that test to, to uh, antiquity, rather, as you apply that test to the Bible, thank you, edit please, as you apply that test to the Bible, we can say the internal test, ah, okay, uh, clearly across the board stands up. What we experienced really happened. We have experienced firsthand. Here's the second test that Sanders, Sanders uh, brings to us, and that is, as it, as, as, as it applies to the text, what's going on? externally. So we've talked about what's going on internally. Externally, outside of the Bible, is there proof? And basically what this answers is, what does outside sources and evidence say about the Bible? In other words, non-biblical sources, do they deny what the Bible says or do they actually confirm it? So first of all, we, we know that the simple fact of Jesus' existence is well established. You can read about Jesus Christ in all sorts of non-biblical writings that, that prove this fact. The historicity of Jesus Christ alone is well established by early Roman writings or Greek or 
even some of the Jewish sources, all of these extra-biblical writings completely affirm the major details in the New Testament about the portrait of who Jesus Christ is. Um, the first century historian, Jewish historian, his name was uh, Josephus, he made specific references to John the Baptist and uh, Jesus Christ and, and even the Apostle James in his work on the antiquities of the Jewish people. In this work, Josephus gave us major background uh, about the details of who Herod is and the Sadducees and even the Pharisees and, and even talks about Jesus Christ himself and gives a major background about the Roman emperors mentioned even in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We also find a, another early secular letter that was written about uh, AD 73 by a Syrian named uh, Serapon. Uh, this, this guy, he writes this letter and he, to his son, and in this letter he compares the deaths of Socrates, Pythagoras, and Jesus Christ in this letter. Other first and second century writers who mention Christ include uh, uh, Roman historians like uh, uh, Tacitus and Suetonius and even the Roman governor Pliny the Younger and the Greek uh, satirist Lucian. All of these guys actually talk about Jesus Christ and they are non-biblical sources. They're outside of the Bible. So backing up the Jesus Christ in the New Testament that we know. So you may say, great, so we've got a lot of uh, extra-biblical, non-biblical sources, maybe writings that that prove the existence of the Bible, but what about actual hard facts? What about actual proof? What about archaeology? I think for many, many years some would say, well, you know what, we don't actually know enough about archaeology to say that the, there's enough evidence there that supports the, the, the Scripture and the Bible, and, and I would say that's probably pretty true and valid, but with a lot of the advancements in the 20th century in science and archaeology, there's a lot of things that we're finding that actually prove the validity of the Bible. So while we can't say that archaeology actually proves beyond a shadow of a doubt the authority of the Bible, we can't say with a great amount of certainty that there is a lot of archaeological confirmation that proves hundreds and hundreds of biblical statements. In other words, we're finding a lot of stuff that we see in the Bible. Uh, in fact, former president uh, of the Jewish Theological Seminary and we're uh, just world-renowned archaeologist Nelson Gulick says it like this and I quote he says it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference did you hear that nothing that we have found controverts what we read in the Bible and uh, for you and me that's some pretty good news so the bottom line really is uh, we could talk for so long about archaeological evidence. In fact, if you're bored today, <laughs> just Google that. Biblical archaeology, you will get pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. In fact, I've told you this before, but my Sunday school teacher in, I think it was seventh grade, uh, would go away for the summers and he would come back and Mr. Christofferson and he, uh, did I tell you about this guy? He, he had the, the Wrangler jeans and, and the button, you know, and the, the shirt that actually looks like this. And the uh, Indiana Jones hat, you know, and he's all dusty and the big beard. And he would come back and he would, he would spend time in the Middle East digging. And in the fall, he would come back and he would tell us all about it. And a bunch of rambunctious young men would sit around and we, just, we would just be just on the edge of our chairs, listening as to about what he found. There's so much archaeological evidence 
that we find in the Bible that's absolutely, absolutely true. So Sanders came up with these tests. Internal tests, what, what does the Bible say internally? Does it agree? Externally, what do we find outside that's not connected? Non-biblical text. What do we find that actually support the Bible? There's a lot of it. Not, not uh, just writings and archaeological finds. There's a third test that uh, Sanders applies to, to all these, these historical writings, and, and it's the bibli- bibliographical test. It kind of feels like we're back in high school, right? And it's, it, it answers the question, how well were the original documents translated to today? How well have they been passed along? Are they accurate? Uh, so what we have today, is it even you know, remotely anything like the original that has long since disappeared? Is it historically reliable? In, in other words, you've heard people say, oh, the Bible, isn't it just full of errors and contradictions, and isn't it just kind of piecemealed together, and blah, 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 blah. How do we even know that the, the, the Bible that we have today is anything like the Bible that was originally written? It, and I think it's a fair question. I think it's a really fair question. So, so here, here's, here's kind of a, an illustration of that. Let's, let's say that I, I wrote um, a love letter to my wife, this is really all I could come up with this morning. So I wrote a love letter to my wife, and uh, I wrote it, and it was beautiful and just, oh, just dripping with romance, and, and I decided to send it to her because apparently we were not near each other. I don't know why that works out in this illustration, but I sent it to her, and uh, just to be safe, I'll give it to Jimmy. Act like you're my wife. All right. And, uh, and she calls me, and I'm like, honey, this love letter is coming to you, and uh, because I live in Old Testament times, I don't have like a backup drive system. Or a time machine, you know, like by Apple. So I'll just make a photocopy of it by writing, because I don't have Xerox either. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll make a copy of this letter, and I'll just kind of squirrel it away. And she, she calls me, and she's like, honey, the letter not, never got here. I'm like, well, thank God I've got a copy. So I whip out my copy, and I realize, wait a minute, I didn't do a very good job at copying it. I've, I've left out several sentences. I'm pretty sure I, it, the, the original was different. Am I going to actually really ever know what the original said? No. Because this is all I have. This is it. But what if I, I actually went the, you know, the, the, the extra mile and, and I made a ton of different copies? And, and I made um, one, two, okay, catch, please don't put an eye out, three, four, ooh, that looked like that hurt. Four, oh, good thing you're wearing glasses. All right, and, and I make a lot of different copies and, and, and then she calls me and she says, not only did I not get the, the, the thing, but I, I found it in my driveway and it was just ripped to shreds. Ripped to shreds. Honey, what did my love letter say? Can you tell me what the love letter said? I can go, absolutely, because I've got this one here. Oh, you got two. Good, good for you. And Quinn, give that back to me, please. Don't hoard it. Okay. And uh, so I can, I can get my letters back together, and I can look at them, and I can say, well, you know what? I've got seven copies or so here, and this one is not complete, and this one's missing a corner, but I can compare them all And I know what the love letter said, because I have manuscripts. That's that's what's happened with the Bible. So there's two very important questions when it comes to manuscripts, so this bibliographic test. The two questions are this. How many manuscripts do you have? If you've got one, it's not very compelling. (laughs) You probably need more than that. The The second thing that's very important when it comes to manuscripts is not how many do you have, but how far in between are they spanned? 
Okay, so if, if I have a copy every single year, that's pretty good. On the 10th year, I can, I can be pretty certain what I wrote on the first year. But if I only make a copy every 50 years, huh, it's 50 years of silence. So it's very important to know how many years in between copies. Now, now let me just give you some ideas here. First, well, first of all, let me tell you about these Jewish uh, copiers, uh, how, they, how they did this. These guys that sat down, they copied and copied and copied and copied. There's a lot of rules for this. First of all, they had to have a very nice surface, had to be prepared, right? And they, they were not allowed to copy word for word for word. They were only allowed to copy letter for letter for letter for letter. So they wouldn't copy the word the. Well, they didn't know English. But they wouldn't copy the word the. They would copy T. Look at the, 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 the transcript. H. Look at it again. Good. E. And they would go back and they would look at it. After they got done making a manuscript, they had all kinds of calculations and tests to see, did they actually do a great job? So they would take the original and they would count, you know, a thousand letters in or whatever it might be and find the very central letter and then they would do the same thing on this manuscript. And then they would look at it and do lots of different calculations to make sure, is this manuscript an exact copy? And if it was not, they would destroy it and start again. There's no whiteout here. That was not allowed, you know? No correction tape. It was very exact. In fact, there's even records to show that they had to be separated by a hair, each letter. That's ridiculous. But they were so exact about it. And that's how a manuscript was made. Well, then, as we talk about these copies of the Bible... I, uh, how, how good were these copies made? And I just want to uh, give you this one example here. A lot of the Old Testament manuscripts, because we don't have the originals of the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament manuscripts were either destroyed or retired and ceremonially buried, and, and, and throughout time, there became less and less and less. But one of the most well-known and, um, and respected texts of the Old Testament is called the Masoretic Text. And in the ninth century, there were some rabbis who, who worked, and they were called the Masoretes, and they worked together as, and, and to uh, preserve all these traditional scriptures, and it became known as the Masoretic Text. Here's the amazing part of history. In 70 A.D., Rome started to attack the, the Jewish culture, and they wanted to kind of wipe out their culture and wipe out their religion and all their, all their religious heritage and everything. So a lot of the Jewish people during that time took their texts and they would, they would hide them. They would put them in bottles and, and vases and all kinds of stuff, and they would hide them and scroll them away so that they would not be harmed. And for over 1,800 years, a lot of these texts were hidden. Until in 1947, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A Bedouin shepherd boy who was tending his flock stumbled upon these caves. And, and, and I, I, I don't know if this is actually true. I've heard that he threw a stone in, heard a crack or whatever. But he found these, these little vases, these bottles, these jars of text. And he started to, 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 to pull them out. Archaeologists went back. They found 11 different sites with all different sorts of text. Now here's the amazing thing about the story is that when they took these Dead Sea Scrolls and, and compared them to the Masoretic text of long ago, it was stunning how accurate they were. Why is that important? Because a lot of time had passed, and what we read over here, 1,800 years later, is true over here. That's pretty remarkable. That is very remarkable. So the Bible is extremely accurate. Now back to, back to uh, Sanders' test about manuscripts. How many manuscripts of the Bible do we have? Not only partial, 
but whole complete sections of manuscripts. And, and what's the time interval in between? Those are the two tests. What are the, how many do we have, and what's the time interval in between? Well, let's, let's go ahead and compare it to some other historic writings that, that you and I would, would look at and say, yeah, these are valid writings. So first of all, Plato's Republic. Anybody want to guess how many copies we have of, of that book? Seven. We have seven manuscripts. We do not have the original. We have seven manuscript copies. So we can take those seven, we look at them, and go, aha, okay, good. We've got, we've got Plato's uh, writing here. Not only that, Aristotle. Aristotle did some writing. And, and how many copies do we have of his? Five. We have five of his. And so we, we put all those five together, and we understand what he wrote. Caesar, same thing. He's doing a little bit better. Ten. Ten of, of Caesars are put together, and we can understand, okay, this is probably what the original looked like based off of these manuscripts. Now, now we're going to look at a book that, that you're very familiar with. It'll bring back nightmares of, of high school of reading this thing, but Homer's Iliad, right? The Iliad, one of the most revered books, and we would say classical writing. This is, this is uh, authentic and reliable, uh, scholars would say. The Iliad, we pretty much know what the original one looked like because we have manuscripts. 600 and 43 manuscripts. That's a whole lot better than Plato. 647 manuscripts. So we can, we can look at these manuscripts, kind of piece them together and say, yeah, this is pretty much what the original looked like. Now let's compare that same test by Sanders. Let's compare that same test to the Bible. How many manuscripts do we have? Let's just do the, old t- or the New Testament. How many manuscripts do you think we have of the New Testament? Let me show you like this. Here, why don't you stand up here? Turn around, face the crowd. Aren't you glad you sat in the front row? Yeah, okay, hold your hands out. So you just kind of tell me when to stop, all right? They're good for you. Okay, good. Are you happy with that? Sure. Yeah, we have more manuscripts than that. Why don't you move on down? Hey, Jimmy, pop up here, bud. Last time you are sitting on the front row. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Okay, good. Kind of move over here. Hey, come on up. Yeah, join the crowd. Join the party. Why don't you stand next to your husband here? Ready? Put your hands out. Great, tell me when to stop. Good. All right. Hey, come on up. Excellent. Excellent. Stand right here. And uh, good. And you guys are, you can keep that, by the way. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Good. All right. Excellent. So I counted these, (laughs) which really makes me feel like a loser, but I counted these and there are 400 and and, uh, there's more than that. 4,560 something odd Cheerios in a box of Cheerios. Give or take like 40 that are like harmed along the way in packaging and broken, all right? So, so that kind of represents here and those who didn't quite make it on the floor. And, and uh, so according to the New Testament, how many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament? Over 4,000. Over 4,000, good. It's much more than that. <laughs> you would actually have to get four more boxes of this to represent the amount of manuscripts we have of the New Testament. Give these guys a hand. You guys can keep that. No, you can keep it. I insist. You can keep it. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's yours, seriously. It's yours. Wow, I feel like you were really ungrateful. Oh, Jimmy kept his. Good. Okay, so we're kind of laughing at that, but do you, do you feel overwhelmed by that? Because I do. I, when, when I think about, not Cheerios, but when I think about the manuscripts, over 27,000 manuscripts. Now, I need, I, I need to go back and say some of those are partial of actual whole manuscripts It's around 5,000 whole manuscripts, 27,000 in all. 
Now, let's go back to the Iliad for a second. Iliad, yeah, okay. And it's like classical writing. Excellent. 640, what did I say? Yeah, I don't know, 43, 47, something like that. It didn't really matter. Over 640, right? The New Testament alone, 27,000. Now, here's the second test that Sanders put towards that when, when, we're, when we're looking at uh, these historical writings. Not only the size of the man, how much manuscripts you have, but how much time has passed. Between the earliest manuscript for the Iliad and the next one, the next uh, manuscript, 500 years. There's a, there's a dark period there, 500 years. Something may have changed. We don't know. 500 years, though. For the Bible, between the, the, the earliest manuscript we have and the next one, 25. Why is this important? <laughs> because whether or not you believe that God's word is God's word, whether or not you believe that, 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 that it is true and reliable and that it is inspired, whether or not you believe that, as a scholar, looking at this, you would say, that is the most reliable book that we have in history. Hands down, it stands by itself. It's in a league of its own. There, there's nothing else that actually comes closer to the Bible than the Iliad. <laughs> Don't you love that? I love that. Because that's, hu that's humongous witness to what God has preserved for us. So we've got the internal text, the test, the, uh, the external test, the bibliographic test, and here's one last test that we want to apply to God's Word in our time together here. And that is, do the things that happen in the Bible actually come to pass? If the Bible says something's going to happen, does it actually happen? Because that's pretty important when you're looking at a, test saying, a text saying this is the inspired Word of God. Okay, prove it to me. Is what it's saying in there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is it coming true? Later on in modern times, do we see that what we call prophecy is the prophecy coming true. Is it true, true that it's an inspired work by God? Because that's huge evidence right there. Well, let me, let me explain to you this way. There was a professor of uh, emeritus of science at Westmont College. His name was Peter Stoner. <laughs> yeah, would you like to go through your life with a name like that? Peter Stoner. And he had, he had 12 different classes. And, and, and out of all these classes, it made up about 600 students. And, and they embarked on this, on this, um, this, this um, what's it called, project to try to see what the likelihood would be of one man, one guy, fulfilling some of the prophecies of the Bible. In, in other words, G there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus and what Jesus was supposed to do and who he was supposed to be and, and all the things that he accomplished in his life and, and, and was he really God or was he just a man? Who knows? And he had all these prophecies and whether or not he was God or just a man came true, whether or not he fulfilled the prophecies. And so they, they decided to look at the prophecies and, and, and say, what's the likelihood that Jesus could fulfill these prophecies? They started off with one of uh, uh, the first prophecies, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5, 2, in the Old Testament, it says that. And you can look to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and you can see that that, that, uh, that prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. And so they took eight of these prophecies, just eight, 
And, and they, they, they averaged, okay, what was the population of, uh, of, of people here on the earth in the time when Jesus was here? How many of those people were living in Bethlehem, blah, blah, blah. And they came up with all these data, all this data and all these stats, and they took this data and they, they gave it to a third-party uh, uh, group of people who verified it and said, yep, this is good, this is great data, and they sent it back, and they started working on these problems and, and, and trying to, to accurately, in, a, in an acceptable way, come up with a figure. What were the odds that one man, one man, could fulfill Eight, only eight of these prophecies that the Bible talked about. What's the chances that Jesus Christ could just pull off eight of the prophecies? And here's what they came up with. The problem goes something like this. The chances, the odds are one in 10 to the 17th. So that's one in 10 to 17 zeros. Somebody after the first service came up to me and told me what that number was, and I didn't really understand it. I, I'd like, I don't, it's like 10 kabillion. I don't know what it is, but it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot. Like you have better chances of winning the lottery in, in Idaho this afternoon if you drive up there. It's, it's a lot. What are the chances? One in 10 to the 17th power. And so Peter Stoner and his, his students, as they were working on this project, they, they came up with a word picture to kind of describe the odds. Because I say that, and, and I don't, it doesn't really register to me, and, and, and I can tell it, you know, we, I can't wrap my head around 10 to the 17th. I don't even know what that is. Talk about 100 bucks. I can understand that. But I don't understand that, that number. So they came up with this word picture, and it kind of went like this. Suppose you took the state of Texas the whole big state of Texas, from Dallas to you know, Houston to Abilene, the whole deal, and you filled it up two feet deep with silver dollars. And you took one silver dollar, just one, and, and you made a, a, an X on it, and you just threw it out there in any highway, any airport, any field, any, anywhere. It doesn't matter. And you buried it as far down as you want. It doesn't matter. And then you took a guy, and you blindfolded him, and spun him around and let him go. And he stumbles around for days, weeks, hours, I don't care, whatever it may be. And when he thinks, ha, 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 I'm here, he could reach down and just one pick, just one pick, reach down, grab the silver dollar, and it's the one with the X. That's one in 10 to the 17th. Those are the chances. Thank you for saying, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Anybody, you can say that's amazing. That's amazing. Turn to your friend. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, there was eight prophecies. How many prophecies are in the Bible that Jesus had to fulfill? Not all of them fulfilled yet. That, that, that Jesus had to fulfill. How many? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> Over 450. So they worked that number again. Second service, or first service didn't get this. This is bonus material here. They came up with a different equation. One in ten to the 147th power. I don't know what that means. That's a lot of zeros. That means it's impossible. That is what prophecy is about. That is what Jesus came to do, is to fulfill those. Listen, I, I didn't know if this would be kind of weird, but I wanted to spend a few moments just reading a few, just a tiny bit of those prophecies. And, and can I invite you to just kind of bask in the power for a second? Just feel the emotion as I read these prophecies. Just kind of sit and ponder these prophecies for a moment. And check it out on the screen here. These are prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it was 
prophesied that Jesus would be born, born of a virgin. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 came true. But Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. Zechariah 9, 9, Jesus would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. In John chapter 12, verse 15, it, it was fulfilled. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In Psalm 41, it talks about Jesus being betrayed by a friend. Even, even my closest friend, whom I trust, has lifted his heel against me. Matthew 26, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Isaiah 53, 7 talks about how Jesus would be silent before his accusers. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. In Matthew 27, it says, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Isaiah 50 says that he was beaten and spat upon. And Matthew 26 says they, they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. In Psalms 22, it talks about how the soldiers would cast lots and they divided my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. And John 19 fulfills this prophecy. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and they divided them into four shares. In Isaiah 53, it talks about how he was crucified with criminals. In Mark 15, it came to be. In, in, in Psalm 69 too, it says that when he was thirsty, they would give him vinegar to drink, to quench his thirst. In, in John 19, that's exactly what happened. In Psalm 53, 5, it talks about how our, our Lord, our Savior, would be pierced for, for our sins. And in John 19, 34, that prophecy is fulfilled. And finally, it talks about that Jesus would rise again. Psalm 118, verse 17 through 18 says this, I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me, given me over to death. Mark chapter 16, it was so. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. I think fulfilled prophecy is one of the most compelling evidence that the Bible is what it says it is. The inspired words of God. In 30 minutes, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, we've gone from internal, external, to, to non-biblical writings, to just barely touching on even just the topic, the hint of archaeology that is just a landslide, to prophecy, which is huge. And I think where I want to leave you today, that if, if this evidence is, is truly overwhelming, if, if, if this is really God's word, if it really is inspired, if just for a moment, beyond a reasonable doubt, if we can just kind of, God, in a court of law, say there is a chance that this is the word of God, that this is God's love letter to us. If we could come to that point and say, man, no matter where my faith is, whatever I believe about who God is and, and all this stuff, if, if I could just wrap my, my mind around this evidence for just one minute, then I want to challenge you. I'd love to challenge you for a second to consider what 
would bring the most change in the world for you? If, if we could do anything to change the world, what one thing would change the world the most? And, and I don't think it's being incredibly generous and, and, and taking our, our, our resources and, and, and helping out people that are, 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 are less fortunate. I don't think that's it. I don't even think it's, it's being mission-minded and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go tell the whole world about Jesus Christ. I don't really think that's it either. I, I don't think it's being incredibly, incredibly uh, prayerful or even incredibly joyful or incredibly godly or incredibly uh, great parents that we would raise the next generation of future leaders that would come up. If, if we could do one thing, if I could challenge you today to do one thing that would radically change the world and your life as you know it, it would be to daily read God's word. If this truly is the word of God, if there's even just a sliver of evidence that this is the inspired love letter from God to you, that if you and I consumed this thing and started to get into it and, and check it out, not, well, well, I heard that it was this or I, don't, I haven't read the Bible and, and I, don't, I just think this about it, but actually having a first-hand witness account, if you and I would do that, all those things that I just mentioned would happen. The world would be changed because God's letter would be in us. <laughs> because as I read God's letter and his love letter for me and I start to explore what he wants me to know, I'm going to live my life mission-minded. I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to want to speak to him more, be more joyful. I'm going to want to, to share with him, uh, uh, share other people with, with him because of God's letter taking root inside of my life, our lives would change because of what's written inside of it. Ephesians chapter two, and I, I, I gotta get off the stage, but Ephesians chapter two, verse four and five says this. Instead, the verse before said, it was talking about God's wrath. <laughs> Instead, and you can throw God's name in here, God, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. And he did all of this on his own with no help from us. That's love. That's what this love letter is all about. <laughs> this is a story, this book here. It's an amazing story of, of passion. It's, it's, <laughs> it's steeped with endless grace. It's, it's this, this story of mercy that you and I can't even, I can't even wrap my, my mind around how much mercy and grace and forgiveness is in this book, this love letter. And I become one more witness along the way in this court case when I start to pick it up and start to realize that this love letter has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I become a witness when it starts taking root in my life. How do, how do I know this is true? Oh my goodness, this has changed my life. That's how I know it's true. I'm a witness, a first-hand account witness, not secondary. I've experienced it. Here's what I want to leave you today. Man, if you've been, if you've been going to church all your life, man, you know this, uh, you, you can... You're way more smarter than I can. You could have given this talk backwards and forwards, and you, you know facts that I've even left out. If you've got a long history of walking with Christ, I want to challenge you to reignite your passion for this love letter. 
You cannot afford to let a day go by without picking this puppy up. I'm telling you, if this is life, if this is the ability to change the world in your life, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot afford to let one day go by without being compelled to pick it up. Back in February, Dave talked about these journals. Do you remember that? Remember that message about journaling and spending time? Those journals are still available for five bucks out in the lobby. Man, grab one on your way out. If you're feeling stale, if you're feeling like, oh man, stress and anxiety and all this stuff going on in my life, do you, this Bible between the covers has answers for you. You have to spend time in it. That will change your life. And if you're here today and you're like, okay, but what about yada, yada, yada? And what about this question? And what about this fact? And what about this? What about that, huh, preacher boy? <laughs> and I would ask the same question. Oh, there's so many questions in here that I don't understand. There's so much evidence that I don't understand yet. But here's my commitment. I'll journey with you. Ask your tough questions. Push back on the Bible. Tear it apart. Put it to the test. Rip this thing up on, on truth, trying to figure out, is this really the word of God? Because here's what I believe. If you are willing to be a first-hand explorer and witness, I believe that you are going to run headlong into God. This is a great place to do this. In fact, today, if you're like, man, okay, I'll take you up on the challenge. Grab a free Bible out in the lobby today. Start your journey now. Start it today. As we move into this time of worship, it really comes out of knowing. This, this worship, this singing back praise to God, really comes out of knowing how much God cares for me and loves me. Enough to retain this text for so long. I mean, why, 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 did, why did he have landslides of evidence? Why not just 650 manuscripts, Iliad? You know, why, why not just, just, just a little less than some of the other historical writings? Why 27,000? Why, why internal tests that pass? Why external tests are so compelling? Because I think God is screaming from the heavens, this is for you. And when I get this into my life, what happens through personal experience is I explode in worship. I, 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 I cannot help but be a changed life because of what Jesus has done for me recorded in here. That's why we're going to go into worship now. That's why we're going to stand before the throne, pull up a, a chair, and just seek God. Stand with me and let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I, I, I know that we have scratched. I feel like we've just barely pulled back a couple layers. There's so much more. I mean, I could spend a lifetime of, and I will, of, of just trying to find out more and more about you. And I turn another corner and I just get blown away. <laughs> I love that, God. I just, I just start laughing at all the, all the evidence that you have mounted. Oh. And, and then it feels like, God, it, all that evidence just is you screaming out again and again that you love us so much. It's almost like you're saying, this, this is how much I love you. Okay, okay, now, now this much, and this much, and, and so much more. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your word, for the life that it brings, that, that when, we, when we open it up and it takes root in our life, that we are changed people.
What a great God you are. What a great God you are. And this morning we stand here and on. We just, we worship you. We celebrate you. We celebrate your love letter. And we're your people. We praise things your name.